0: Hello, and welcome to the November edition of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Ginolfi.
1: And I'm Howard Marlowe.
0: Of course, thanks very much uh, to American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today for hosting us. On this month's episode, we'll give the insider scoop on the Coastal Barrier Resources Act and its effect on uh, in the U.S. and the reauthorization of expiring beach projects. Then we'll break down what's in store uh, for the coast in Biden's latest Build back, uh, build back Better proposal, uh, now smaller, and then we'll cover some important news from the core, uh, I'm sorry, uh, from Congress on Capitol Hill. Let's get started. For those who don't keep up with the minutia of coastal policy, uh, there was a recent change in the interpretation of a federal law called the Coastal Barrier Resources Act that denies the use of federal funding to dredge specific designated areas for beach nourishment. I think there's too much history to cover here on this podcast, uh, but the reason that we bring this up today is because it restricts several beach nourishment projects from using a reliable source of sand that is sitting literally right next to them. Uh, And this recent change forces some communities and states to find new sources of sand that have never been used before and for which their impact to nearby ecosystems is unknown. To be clear, these are areas that are far enough offshore, often several miles, um, that they're far enough off to impact uh, fisheries and other various species that live in deeper waters. In the case of one of our clients in New Jersey, the, specific, uh, the use of a specific inlet sand source was actually approved by the Fish and Wildlife Service when their federal project was authorized and was approved for, re, uh, for several renourishments over more than a decade until the Fish and Wildlife Service abruptly re- reversed its opinion on the use of the borrow site. The project was last renourished in 2017 when the state paid an additional, actually more than $6 million in state tax money to pump sand from a sand source uh, that was five miles away. The original one was just just a mile offshore. And here's the most important point about this new decision by the Fish and Wildlife Service. In this area of New Jersey, since the project began in the 1990s, it has created over 200 acres, over 1.5 miles in length, of nature preserve that is home to various endangered species. So this is a clear benefit that has been entirely ignored by the administration's new legal interpretation of the law. These benefits have been documented by leading coastal researchers and coastal models show that if the dredge project does not continue uh, to dredge sand and, and replace it farther up, up the, in essence, in this, in this uh, the littoral drift uh, and keep it within the system, that that area is going to continue to erode back to nothing as it was just a few decades ago. So in essence, this is a short-sighted um, you know, play by the administration to quickly undo anything that Trump did. And I I find it, frankly, dismissive of sound science.
1: Well, let's talk about some things that are going on elsewhere. President Biden is over, as we speak right now, in Glasgow, Scotland, for COP26. That's a two-week UN conference on uh, climate change. It's big because usually these conferences are you know, just conferences where you have things coming out at the end which say, well, we did a good job or we did our best. This is the second time where nations throughout the world are getting together, trying to collectively deal with climate change. While I was over there, he announced that uh, methane caps, uh, methane gas caps uh, were being uh, reinstituted. They had been rolled back during the Trump administration and they're being increased. So the President at least had that to start out. We'll see what happens by the time the conference ends. Um, There's a new, uh, the new budget deal marks the biggest climate investment in US history. I'm talking about uh, what is going into the budget reconciliation bill. Now, this is something that may or may not happen. We'll talk about that in a second. But basically it provides tax credits for companies and consumers that are designed to make it easier and maybe cheaper to buy electric vehicles, install solar panels, retrofit buildings, and manufacture wind turbines and other clean energy equipment. EV credit would lower the cost of EVs made in America and be phased out for wealthier families. Civilian Climate Corps also would be created to hire 300,000 young people. That's in quotes, they're discriminating against us not necessarily young people, to restore forests and wetlands. On wind turbines, there's also climate news. The Biden administration announced last week that the Interior Department will offer lease sales off the coasts of North Carolina, Louisiana, Texas, as part of a commitment to deploy 30 gigawatts of offshore wind energy by 2030. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, you know, we use 30 and gigawatts. I was going to ask you, that must be a lot.
0: I wish I I had a reference, but I mean, that's that's enough to power, I can say, at least a couple hundred homes at the very least. Yeah,
1: better be Um. several hundred, I think, probably. (laughs) But, you know, bottom line, I think all of these things, they're not enough, but they are major steps forward. And I think that's important for us to focus on here. Because coming out of, uh, certainly when we talk about in a second, again, the Build Back Better proposal. Uh, there's going to be a lot of not enough, but if it ever comes to pass, it will be a major step forward. So the president's uh, the president's original Build Back Better proposal was about three point five trillion, as I recall. It's gone on a diet, and it's now about half of what it's uh, of its previous size. A lot has been agreed upon, but not enough. Not enough to, uh, you know, still get it into a position where it's going to be passed. As recently as yesterday, Senator Manchin of West Virginia said he won't support the entire package until he knows its cost and its impacts on the economy. Now, why is that important? He's a Democrat. There are only 50 Democrats compared to 50 Republicans, plus Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, who is a Democrat, and she is a member of the Senate for purposes of breaking a tie. So we need every Democratic vote we can get, is what President Biden would say. Right now, I would say, really, who knows whether or when we're going to get that one vote that's needed to make sure that we have 51 votes. Now we've already talked about the claims that this uh, that this is that Build Back Better three Bs uh, is the largest investment this country has ever made to combat climate change, but here's some other information that you ought to know. The draft that is out there this week has six billion dollars for NOAA. That's important. We don't know how NOAA's going to use it, except it's for NOAA to be used in both combating disasters and um, promoting resilience. Infrastructure. Now, depends on the agreement, the infrastructure bill that's already passed the Senate, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. When's a vote going to come? It could come this week by the time you're listening to this podcast in the House. On the other hand, it maybe won't. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. None of us knows. Vote is promised in the House. First, it was promised by the end of September. That didn't happen. End of October didn't happen. This week, maybe. End of November, maybe. When the government runs out of funding on December 3rd, maybe. I don't know. Appropriations, House and Senate appropriations leaders are getting together this week to look at uh, getting movement on the 12 appropriations bills. The House has passed all of its bills, and the Senate committee has approved all of its bills, that is, its versions of the bills. The trouble is, the the versions have several major disagreements. The aim is to get one draft omnibus bill, including all 12 bills, ready for a vote by November 29th. That is what the appropriations leaders have said. Now, Senate Appropriations Committee Chair Leahy also has said that both Republican and Democratic earmarks will stay in the final bill that Congress passes. That's important for you folks who have members of Congress who have gotten an earmark into either the House or the Senate bill. It will stay in the final bill. Something is kind of interesting, by the way. Of the top 10 senators receiving earmarks, seven were Republicans. Kind of interesting, because not all Republicans made earmark requests. And in fact, the Republican conference rules in both the House and the Senate are to oppose earmarks. So... You, you know, what do you think about that? I don't when the
0: rules change, you, uh, you know, sometimes there's new opportunities to follow the rules in a way that you may have disagreed with before that uh, gets it, you, yeah, gets it's you a what you want.
1: Really, because when you have that many members of both parties making earmark requests, that means they have interest in almost all of the 12 bills. Uh, one of the defense bills has nothing that's local, so there are no earmarks at all. So 11 of the 12 have members of Congress from both parties who have earmarked interest in getting those bills passed. They will be passed. We will not have a government shutdown. We may have these kind of continual, short, contes- uh, continuing resolutions going on, but I think we will have a bill passed. And we can credit that to these the creaky start, but the good start, that uh, I think, is still solid. I said creaky because... Again, the House and Senate Republicans say, no, no, they're bad, but, oh yes, well, some of us will take advantage of them, some of us won't, which is fine. It
0: would frankly be a loss if they didn't.
1: Yeah. You know, you can't you
0: can have the entire other party making earmark requests. And,
1: and not have, not you have, you know, own. have your mean, own constituent interests. Right. Earmarks can only go to governmental entities or nonprofits. Terrible nonprofits, by the way. So, any of you who have an earmark
0: is the most streamlined and easiest way to get funding out of an appropriations bill. Yeah. So, you... if you're not going to put in an earmark, there is other. There are other ways to get funding. And that's how it's been done for the past decade, more or more.
1: Yeah. You. you but you when, you, get...
0: when you have that tool back, use that tool.
1: Use it, because the other way for, and this is particularly true for smaller local governments. There is. No likelihood. And we we have a lot of small local government clients. And we went through a period when there was no earmarks. And we tried to get them grants. They just could not compete well against medium-sized and larger local governments for getting the grants, federal grants. And the paperwork involved, both when you get the grant, when you try to get the grant, and when you get the grant, is ugly. So, therefore... We gave up that thing, and they went to looking for state grants and wherever else they could find money, which is increasing our local taxes mostly. So it's a good idea. Let's talk about uh, further about the debt limit, actually. It's been uh, on our way to the Scotland Climate Conference. Treasury Secretary Yellen changed her tune about getting a partisan agreement to raise the debt limit. Previously, she said it had to be bipartisan. That is the way it always has been. We've always worked out a bipartisan increase in the debt limit. Sorry about that. Debt, uh, the debt limit, she says now, has got to happen because the Democrats have got to make it happen and maybe as part of a reconciliation bill. debt limit is sets the maximum amount the U.S. can borrow under the law. Congress has also approved spending laws requiring the federal government to run a national debt in excess of this limit, The important part about this is that breaching the debt limit sends a bad message to all of the folks who are invested, and those are mostly foreign governments, as well as U.S. taxpayers who have invested in uh, U.S. debt. It rattles world markets. None of us want to have world markets rattled because it could plunge the uh, U.S. economy into a recession. How about the disaster package? It's passed by Congress In the continuing resolution that is keeping government funding right funded right now, the Department of Housing and Urban Development (HUD) says it will distribute two billion of the money that it got, so that states and communities can recover from disasters and also build resilience. Two states that don't have any disasters, I believe, have never any gotten any of the disaster or resilience money from HUD. Oregon and Michigan will get some of this money. So that's a first. There's really no clear line between how the Democrats and, uh, you know, how Democrats are going to work out uh, their agreement on getting debt limit increased. But the fact is, it's another crisis to come. And possibly they could just agree that it won't come until sometime in February, which is the latest estimate that some economists have made. Finally, the FEMA community rating system. This, uh, I think, goes in the category, Dan, where no good deed goes unpunished. Under the community rating system, as I understand it, and you're better knowledgeable in this.
0: If your community takes is proactive about addressing flooding by raising homes and taking utilities and elevating them to higher... Uh, you Know above ground and flood proofing and all those sorts of things. If you can get a, a percentage of your community or, or all, ideally, to make investments in, in essence, making your resilient more your community more resilient, you can get significant discounts on your flood insurance premiums. And that's through the community rating system. It's called the CRS.
1: Now, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources says it only further incentivizes bad development.
0: Well, it doesn't. It doesn't directly encourage more development, but it encourages people to stay there.
1: Yeah. So I think the position that is being taken, and I don't want to just pick on Minnesota because the Association of State Floodplain Management uh, Managers has also said it's a perverse incentive which encourages development in high fl- flood risk areas. Please, folks, these folks are not going to disappear off the coast or from riverine areas. You think that they're going to move away and make the desert all populated? This is not going to happen. We have to try to make areas resilient first. Some people will have to move. There is no doubt about that. But you can't blame communities and whole programs for trying to reduce the taxpayer cost of disasters, post-disaster.
0: I think it's extremely easy for people to say that other people should sell their houses. Yes. But when, I mean, we have a client who is literally, no houses are falling into the ocean, but it's happened there before. Mm. And it is very close to happening again. And one of the comments that one of the residents made was that it's amazing how insensitive other people can be when making comments about their community. And this was, you know this was from an engineer who was trying to give them good advice. but I think just oftentimes it comes across insensitive and uh, you know you got to realize that the pe- a lot of times people's entire life savings are put into some of these properties, and to see it wash away and the, not just the money, but the culture, their kids, their families, their, their neighbors are now losing something they've had for 50 or, or more years in some cases. To tell someone to leave is extremely offensive.
1: Oh, extremely, without a doubt, because, you know, I look at uh, where I live, which is not a you know affected by this at all, and I know I've been there 30-plus years, and I've been making improvements and doing things like that. There's a value to not just my house. There's a value to the community I live in that any changes that are proposed— and this happens when there's a school system change, you know, school lines change, or when somebody says, well, we don't want, uh, uh, we, we want to have uh, duplexes allowed in our community. Anything that changes the character of your community gets you real concerned and upset. Okay, now you want me to go? No longer live here? Because, what? Well, it's at risk? You what if truth. when you
0: bought that house 30 years ago, it, there was no risk? There was. What if you were it's protected just, it, by it, it 500 feet of dunes, and for whatever reason, you've lost 500 feet of dunes? That's, that's a rare event. So
1: so many people that you and I have talked to along the coast will tell you that when they bought 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that ocean was much further away. Sea levels are increasing Nobody along the coast denies that they may have doubts about human, you know, whether human uh, activities involved in uh, global climate change. They have no doubt about sea level rising.
0: (laughs) For those who do doubt sea level rise, they don't doubt flooding because they see that. (laughs) that. So, wherever the nexus is, they're seeing flooding. There's one, there's one other, uh, uh, A piece I wanted to bring up up about expiring beach nourishment projects. Um, We've been tracking several beach nourishment projects that are set to expire in the next decade. uh, And we've been working to find solutions for those communities who might be left without a project when their authorization expires. Now, most beach nourishment projects are authorized for 50 years. Um, Now, with current core models, some beaches, including Miami Beach and Tybee Island in Georgia, can't make a one-to-one BCR, which is required under federal law. We've heard rumors that committees are cooking something up. We don't know what they have in mind yet. But this may allow projects to be reauthorized in some way, somehow, beyond their original 50-year authorization. Now, the first issue I see is with the 902B cost limits, which are the overall spending caps that the court cannot break through without further project-specific authorization from Congress. I just want to put this out there because, again, Miami Beach is one that we've mentioned on this podcast multiple times. It's one of the most visited beaches in the United States. It draws an enormous amount of tourism, produces billions of dollars in federal and state tax revenue. Yet we're finding that it doesn't – we can't make this beach bigger to allow more money to flow into the economy because of –
1: Yeah, we just can't keep it.
0: Because of the way the core models are looking at the benefits and costs.
1: There's something wrong with the models, There's got to be something wrong. There's something wrong with the way the CORE does its benefit-cost analysis. We are not the first ones to say that. Maybe we were a long time ago, but not on this podcast. The fact is that it's perverse to be able to say, not just at Miami Beach, that it could be Folly Beach in uh, South Carolina. It could be whatever beach you want to talk about, whether there is federal involvement on renourishment. It is stupid to say that they don't qualify. And I'm not saying that Folly Beach was not. We had Tybee Island in in Georgia, which certainly was told, we don't qualify. It's stupid by the federal government and it is stupid by the court to not figure out how to better incorporate, not just by the decrees that have come down, but in fact, because in fact, it's not working right now, folks. So please do something to get it right. Otherwise, Congress will try to just keep on filling, trying to tell you to get it right.
0: And this is the first time that any project uh, in the 50-year program has expired. So this is, this is a first for all beach nourishment projects. There's other other types uh, of, of projects that have limitations. But if it's a 50-year project authorized by Congress, uh, chances are it has not expired yet, because Tybee's going to be the first one. So right. we'll see how this plays out. Um, and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future podcasts. Note to all of our listeners as well, uh, if you're on LinkedIn, please follow Waterlog. Uh, we post some some material that doesn't always end up on our podcast, but we still think is very useful to our readers, uh, whether it's from the Corps or Congress or just interesting news we thought you uh, on to post, know about. I posted
1: some this week, so look for it. We didn't even mention it. It's only for those of you who follow us on LinkedIn.
0: Uh, we've also posted all of uh, a list of all of our federal bills um, that are related to the coast, so those will be up there too. Uh, another area of interest: uh, we're looking to uh, talk a little bit more. P3 is on our next on our next podcast. So, these um, so are public-private partnerships. We just had the Fargo-Moorhead diversion; uh, an agreement
1: was made on that. Um, it's Extremely important in terms of alternative finance, because there simply is not enough federal money or state money, or local money, to be able to do the kind of projects, whether they're on the coast or inland, to meet water resource needs of 21st century. So getting the private sector involved is something that we're very big on, and we're going to be discussing it in our next uh, month's podcast.
0: That'll be in December. Until then,
1: happy Thanksgiving.
0: Bye-bye.